gospel, so Colossians 3, starting at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thanks, Lucy. I have met you before. My name is Rowan Kemp. Uh, my, my privilege to speak to you over these three weeks in this EU series on the ethics of dating. So let me ask you some ethical questions about dating. Is it possible, do you think, to break up with somebody in a loving way? Or is just the very nature of breaking up with somebody an unloving act? In which case, if you're a Christian person committed always to loving other person, can you ever go out with anyone if yours might end up breaking up with them? What should you do if you see a Christian friend dating someone who you think is not good for them? <coughs> or what should you do if you see a Christian friend dating someone and you think they'd be better off dating you? <laughs> what advice would you give a Christian friend who wants to know if they should marry the person that they're dating and they come to you for advice? How do you know if your Christian friend is making a wise decision in who they've chosen to date? What should Christians look for in someone? These are some of the questions we're going to think about today as we continue our series on the ethics of dating. A bit of a recap first. As I explained last week, this series is trying to give a Christian perspective on dating. It's a series for everyone, though, whether you're a Christian or not, because I'm hoping that it will give you a window into the Christian worldview where the Lord Jesus Christ is at the centre. I hope it's especially helpful for everyone in the Christian community because as we've looked at last week, Christian holiness is a community concern. It's not, it's about us together, not just an individual responsibility. So this series should help everyone who calls themselves a Christian to help others honour Jesus more in their lives, particularly in the way we date. And last week I started to outline a general Christian framework drawn from the Bible that you can apply to any sort of situation, an ethical question, but which we're going to apply to dating. And you can see I've drawn it back up here on the board for you. It starts by this general Christian ethical framework, starts by recognising that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is at the centre of absolutely everything. That's what the New Testament and the Christian Bible teaches us, that all things have been created in him, created by him and created for him. And all things have been reconciled to the one true living God through him, through his death and resurrection. So it's not meant to sound corny, but it's true that as Christians, Christians date for Jesus. He is at the centre of their decision about whether to date or not. And he's at the centre of how Christians date which radically changes how you think about dating because dating is not primarily anymore about your own gratification 
It's actually about the other person's godliness. So with Jesus in centre place, how then does the Bible develop its ethical framework? Well, the Bible's approach to ethics is to consider the nature and the purpose that the one true living God has given to whatever we are investigating. In this case, we're thinking about dating. Within a Christian framework, as we saw last week, dating is something that we've invented. It's a cultural, a human cultural construct. We've invented it in the Christian framework as a way of moving from being celibate siblings in Christ to being married lovers in Christ. Because within the Bible's understanding of relationships in Christ, you are either a celibate sibling in Christ, relating in absolute purity, that is, with not even a hint of any sexual activity, or you might be a married, a married lover in Christ, a husband or a wife, in a fully sexual marriage. Now, the interesting thing is that the Bible doesn't prescribe how you move from one relationship to the other. Now, for good or for ill, we've invented dating. Or more accurately, I guess, not just dating, there's a couple of stages. There's some sort of initial attraction where you sort of start to really notice the other person in a special sort of way, pay particular attention to them, and then you decide, hopefully, if you're not completely chicken, to at least get to, get to know them a little bit. So you start just, just you know, hanging out with them and a bunch of other people, just, you just get into another sort of that connecting phase. Then if, you know, that leads to something that maybe you might actually be then formally some sort of inner relationship. You start dating the person. And then maybe that might lead on if you decide to, yes, you want to marry this person and they want to marry you, then you get engaged. Engagement's always mutual, by the way. You can't have a one-way engagement. <laughs> Where you've decided to make the promise of Christian marriage to each other. So last week, we started to explore the nature and the purpose of dating within this Christian framework. Now, if you're not operating within a Christian framework, dating would look different. Dating might have a different purpose and a different nature. But within, we're exploring what this looks like within the Christian framework. So before I want to go any further, though, and thinking more about that, I want to go back to this general ethical framework that we drew from the Bible because there was one part of this picture that I didn't have time to cover last week that I want to add to it to, to fill out this general Christian ethical framework. And that is love. Where does love fit into this? See, in the ethical reasoning we have in the Bible across both the Old and the New Testaments, the result of having Jesus at the centre and thinking about nature and purpose, once you've thought about those things, out of that flows various behavioural implications. Outflows your ethical conclusions, right? Out of thinking about Jesus at the centre and the nature and the purpose of the thing you're thinking about. Depending on the situation or the thing you're thinking about, those behavioural implications can be quite varied. So I'll give you some examples from the New Testament. When you, there's a Christian who's been lazy and sponging off other people. Well, the New Testament says that person is to be warned and told to get a job. If you're feeling the Holy Spirit convict you at this particular point, then, yeah, <laughs> don't resist. 
the Christian in the New Testament who is being persecuted is not to repay evil with evil, even though that might be one's first inclination, but rather to pray for their persecutor. There's a behavioural implication that flows out of thinking about that situation. Or or that in the New Testament, Christians are to pay their taxes and give respect to the government even when the government rejects Jesus as Lord. So the behavioural implications are quite varied. But what binds them together is that the preeminent behavioural implication in the Old and New Testament is love. Let's go back to the passage that Lucy read out for us at the beginning. If you've got your Bible there, or you can open up, pull it up on your phone. Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Notice what the Apostle Paul says here to the Colossian Christians. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. See there, there's a range of behavioural implications for Christians flowing out of, notice, flowing out of our renewed nature and purpose under Christ. We are now God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's a, that's a comment about nature, renewed nature of God's people under Christ. And the behavioural implications are compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. But notice verse 14, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's not that love replaces or outweighs the other Christian virtues, rather love binds those other virtues together. I guess one way of thinking about that is in the right context and the right way, each of those other virtues are an expression of love in the different situations. And as we've seen now this year in EU Public Bank, if you've been with us during the year, as we've been looking at John's Gospel, love is the consistent expression of the one true living God for his people. He consistently expects that his people will love one another. They should love him with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. And they should love their neighbour as themselves. Why is that so important in the Christian understanding? Well, because love is the consistent character of God himself. He is eternal relationships of love as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And he is steadfast in his compassionate love towards us. So here's our... Christian ethical framework drawn from the Christian scriptures. The Lord Jesus is at the centre of absolutely everything. God has given each thing its nature and a purpose. It's given each thing its own nature so that it might achieve the purpose he sets for it. And out of that flows a range of behavioural implications, but the preeminent behavioural implication is love. Love for God and love for neighbour. So let's take that framework and apply it to thinking about dating. What is the purpose of dating within a Christian framework? Well, in light of our Christian ethical framework, the ultimate purpose of dating is the same as any relationship. The ultimate purpose is love. 
Well, duh, you say. Of course, dating is about love. No, I, I mean love, not love. <laughs> Which I think you spell L-U-R-V, but I didn't recognize it. When we say that the preeminent Christian behavioral implication is love, what do we mean? Well, here's my running definition from the Christian scriptures of what love is. Christian love is humble, other person-centered commitment to their good. Humble, other person-centered commitment to their good. That's the Christian understanding of love. Because that's the love that the one true living God showed us in sending his son Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins upon the cross. And that's the love that all Christians are called upon to show towards God and towards one another and even towards those who hate us. So Christians sometimes get confused and think that dating, or marriage for that matter, is just about love. By which I mean that romantic feeling of being in love where everything is roses and rose-coloured glasses, frankly, where the other person, it seems, can do no wrong. You know, oh, look at the way they chew with their mouth open. <laughs> it's so cute. It's so adorable, really. Yeah, that'll play. <laughs> that feeling of, oh, she's so amazing. Oh, he's so hot. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with those feelings, right? It's just a normal part of attraction. And God has wired us so that at times we might have those feelings of love. But we do make a terrible mistake when we confuse those feelings with Christian love. The ultimate purpose of dating, as in any Christian relationship, is love. To humbly seek the other person's good ahead of my own. That's why dating in a Christian framework is not about self-gratification, it's about their godliness, because that's what other person's sense of love looks like. But whilst the ultimate purpose of dating, like the ultimate purpose of any human relationship, is love, that is not its defining purpose. Dating as a particular type of relationship has a particular purpose in the Christian framework. Its purpose is to make a decision. Namely, am I willing to make the Christian marriage promises to that other person? Now, given this particular defining purpose to make this particular decision, you clearly would not date someone who you had already decided you could not or would not choose to marry. If the purpose of dating is to make that decision, if the decision's already made, you clearly don't date them. Does that make sense? I'm trying to, trying to start to think through ethically how you, how you think about dating. So, for example, it's very clear in the Bible that the Christian understanding of marriage, and I'm emphasizing this is the, the, the Bible's understanding of marriage is, that you don't marry someone who's already married. Right? If they're married, then actually you don't marry them. It's clear in the Bible, the Christian understanding of marriage is that you don't marry someone of the same sex as you. A marriage in the Bible is between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. 
It's very clear in the Bible that you don't marry somebody who is a close relative. You don't marry your sister or your biological brother. You don't marry your stepsister or your stepfather. You don't marry your uncle or your aunt. Or it's very clear in the Bible that there's a whole bunch of close relationships that you're not to marry those people. And I would suggest it's also clear in the scriptures, some may disagree with me on this, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, that for Christians, God's good intention for us is that as Christians we might marry other Christians. From 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. But let's think for a moment. Suppose you come across somebody one day, as a Christian person, you come across somebody who is single, Christian, of the opposite sex and not a close, close relative. They tick all the boxes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Easy peasy. After all, isn't Christian marriage fundamentally just about you keeping your marriage promise? They tick the boxes, they're in the zone, you're going to keep your promises, all good. Is that right? Well, at a level, at a, at, sort of yes and no. Yes, in the sense that, well, Hosea, the prophet in the Old Testament, who was commanded by God to marry a prostitute, and tragically she kept on prostituting herself. But Hosea was to remain faithful despite her faithlessness. And that was to be a picture to God's people of God's own faithfulness to his wayward people. And there are many people who live today in difficult marriages and who strive to be faithful in that difficult situation. There are many who have no choice in who they marry if you've had an arranged marriage, as millions do. But be aware, that is a hard and challenging road. It's not impossible, but it might be filled with many difficult situations. The challenge of loving your marriage partner in those difficult situations is considerable. And love in those difficult situations might be love that actually has to move out because your spouse is abusive. Love that is filled actually with grief and pain. So it might not be essential, but I'd suggest that given that we have the opportunity to choose who we're going to marry within that bounds of single, Christian, opposite sex and not a close relative, it would be wise, I would suggest, to really get to know the other person before you decide to marry them even if they are in the zone. That's, I think, a good use of dating. Trying to work out whether you can make this decision of whether you're willing to make the Christian marriage promises to this particular person. Now, working that out is going to take time. It means that dating is a process of discovery. Getting to know the other person moving beyond initial attraction to understand the whole person. You want to understand their dreams. By, by which I mean not their, like, wow, I woke up and had a crazy dream. You want to understand the dreams. No, I mean their plans. You need to understand their plans, their dreams. How do they want to serve God? You want to understand their, their character, their commitment to Christ. You want to get to know their culture, the family that they've grown up in. Family always has a massive impact on who we are, on what we value, and how we make decisions even. 
You want to understand how they deal with conflict, how they communicate when they're under pressure or upset. I have a friend, Christian friend, who works as a psychologist, not in Sydney, um, and she was telling me that when she counsels couples who come to her now, who are wanting to get married, she'll meet with them individually, and particularly when she's speaking with the woman, she will say to them, have you seen your fiancé or your partner, have you seen them really, really angry? And if they say, well, no, I've not, 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 not seen them really, really angry, then she says, well, that might be a problem. Because unfortunately there are just too many stories of people putting on a good front all the way until the honeymoon. And the number of stories I have now heard of the real person turning up at the honeymoon and that's where the cycle of abuse has begun. Now this particular wise person then sometimes says to the person, well maybe if you've never seen them really, really angry, maybe you need to provoke them. <laughs> <laughs> and you need to be careful about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll grab a machete and start. <laughs> but you can see why. You need to really get to know this other person. You really need to see how they react when they are under pressure. Do they? Everyone communicates well when things are rosy and you're a nice date going around the harbour. How do they communicate when they're under pressure? When they're upset? How do they treat you in those situations? See, feeling in love is great, but don't let it blind you. The counsellors tell us that the romantic rose-coloured glasses fall off for Christians anywhere between three months and three years after the wedding. It's not that there's going to be no ongoing deep feelings of affection and attraction after that, but the romantic positive spin where everything is cute and adorable, that stops and reality takes over. So make sure your attraction to this other person is based on substance and is not superficial. Make sure that your friends who are dating are not merely dating based on superficial ephemeralities. Make sure they're dating people who are based on substance. And may I say, as you take time to get to know this other person, if they don't reciprocate, if they're not taking much interest in you beyond making out with you or beyond whatever you give them in terms of making them look good, if they're not really deeply interested in you, that is a very significant warning sign. That is not going to change if you got married. Do you really want to make those Christian marriage promises to such a person? So there's a word, word, word of caution. But on the flip side, don't become so picky, therefore, that Jesus himself would probably get a swipe left from you on a dating <laughs> The reality is that marriage requires concessions. You will not find a marriage partner who fits perfectly with the life you've planned out for yourself. It just doesn't work that way. 
And the Christian understanding of marriage is that you marry for life anyway. And there's no guarantees that the nice alignment you have now with somebody will remain forever. People change over time. You will need to make concessions. Not just on what you might want to do for God, because as we saw last week, being willing to give that up is part and parcel of choosing to date or get married in the first place. But you might need to make concessions on all sorts of things. How many kids would you like to have? What to do with money? Where to live? What schools to send kids to? What church to go to? What movies to watch? Where to go on holidays? What food to eat? And you're sitting there as a guy at the moment thinking to yourself, that's right, she'll need to make concessions. <laughs> then you need to repent. You need to repent. Who gives up? In the Christian understanding of marriage, who is it who gives up where they want to live? Who is it who gives up how many kids we're going to have? Who is it who gives up what we're going to do on holidays? What movies we're going to watch? What we're going to eat? What schools we'll send our kids to? It's the husband who seeks to be like the Lord Jesus has been for his church. He gave up everything, not to please himself, but for the sake of his bride, the church. If you're not ready to give up as a guy, if you're not ready to make concessions on all those things, then do everyone a favour. Don't get married. I mean that. Don't get married. Because you will not be a blessing to be married to. And you will not bring honour to Jesus in the way you live as a husband. So, you want to be a bit picky you want to be picky on the things that really matter. But you don't want to be picky on what is superficial and fleeting. How someone looks, their clothes, their hair colour, their body type, what car they drive, their earning potential, their public speaking ability, their sporting prowess. These things might be part of an initial attraction you have to somebody. I guess that's normal. But that can't be it. It's not a basis for a lifelong commitment. Looks all fade. Jobs change. Bodies flap. <laughs> People get sick. Don't be picky on what really is just superficial and fleeting. But don't make concessions on what really does matter. Sometimes it is right to be picky on the things that matter. Christian commitment. Christian character. No one is perfect, yes, we all sin, but are you confident that this person is growing in their Christian maturity? Do you see, and I'm choosing these words carefully, do you see continuing patterns of effective repentance? Continuing patterns of effective repentance. That is, 
repentance where actual change happens? Or do you just observe a sin of regret and just repeat cycle? Sin, regret, sin, again, regret, sin, again, regret. Now, are you seeing actual change in this? Are they growing? How do they respond to God's word? Are they doing more than just growing in head knowledge? Do you see them just telling others what God's word says? But do you see them being convicted themselves? Which brings us, I guess, to the sort of person one should look for if one wants to date or get married. Well, here's some wisdom. Maybe look for someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. See, as nice as it is to be the centre of someone else's world, in the end it will not go well. You want them actually to be more focused on Jesus with Jesus as their priority than on you. A greater focus on Jesus means that they will want what is actually good for you. It will mean that they will treat you with greater respect and humility and forgiveness because they want to please Jesus, not just please you. It means that you'll be encouraged in your own faith as they seek to love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. If you're a guy, then I think from the scriptures, if you want to get married to somebody, looking for someone to maybe date, look for a woman who is full of true biblical beauty. I'm thinking about 1 Peter chapter 3 here, verses 3 to 5. Look for a woman of inner, who has that inner beauty of character, what the Bible calls a gentle and quiet spirit, which doesn't mean silent, saying nothing like a wallflower, right? That's not what that means. But it means that you're looking for the inner beauty, not outward adornment of clothes or hair or jewellery. Someone who's not rebellious. For women, it means looking for a man who will treat you with consideration respect and as an equal in Christ. That's from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. You're looking for a man who will not treat you harshly from Colossians 3.19. You're looking for a man who will love you sacrificially like Christ loved the church, giving himself up to serve you, Ephesians 5. I think wisdom says look for someone with whom you agree on fundamental values and interests. And look for someone who is on the journey towards adulthood. I say that because an important part of the Christian understanding of marriage is what used to be called leaving and cleaving. You leave your family of origin and you are joined, cleave, to your marriage partner. And that is, you, you don't disown your previous your family who raised you and who loved you, but your primary relationship now is no longer with them but with this person to whom you've made these Christian marriage promises. And not everyone is ready to do that. You want to look for somebody who's on that journey towards adulthood, who is ready to leave and cleave. Well, we've explored some of the implications of the purpose of dating in this Christian framework. And the fact that dating is about a decision about whether you want to make the Christian marriage promises to this particular person or not, because that's its purpose, that has a quite significant impact on the nature of dating. See, because for Christians, dating is always about making this decision. And therefore, dating always ends, because eventually you make that decision. You either decide, yes, I want to marry this person, and you get engaged, assuming they think the same, 
or you decide no and you break up. Dating is temporary. That's part of the nature of dating, which flows out of its purpose. So consequently, you have to say there that it's not wrong to break up. It might be sad, it might be pain, emotionally painful and certainly awkward, but it's not wrong to break up. It's actually the nature of dating, the dating relationships always come to an end of some sort. Now that's very different to the Christian understanding of marriage, which is clearly for life. So in Matthew 19, Jesus comments on marriage, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God has joined husbands and wives together in marriage. God has not joined you together with that particular guy or girl. See, in the Bible, it's very clear. You're married, or you are single. Dating is very clearly on the single side. You have not yet made those marriage promises for life to this other person. That has quite a lot of impact on, therefore, what's right and wrong to do whilst dating, which is what we're exploring. Dating is temporary. It is not for life. So it's not wrong to break up, and I think that we are actually free, therefore, to break up for any reason we like. Someone told me last week of a person, a woman, who broke up with her boyfriend because he could not do a reverse parallel path. <laughs> and you're sitting there going, yeah, yeah. I know of another person who was thinking of breaking up because the other person chewed their food with their mouth open. Now you might think, oh, that's so superficial, and I probably agree with you, but it's not morally wrong. I don't think it's morally wrong to chew with your mouth open. I don't think it's morally wrong. Actually, if that's really, if that's really an issue for you, you want to break up with that, that's okay. Dating is a voluntary, temporary relationship. It's okay to break up. It doesn't have to be for a good reason. It can be over anything. But what does matter is that you break up in a God-honoring way. Remember, Jesus is at the centre of absolutely everything, including how you break up. So as Christians, we want to break up in a way that doesn't bring Jesus' name into disrepute. So you need to show love for the other person, even as you break up with them. So, for example, telling them that you're not going to date them anymore now, you're not going to be out with them because actually you're going out with somebody else, that's probably not a very loving way to break up. Breaking up via text message, messenger, or a series of emojis, <laughs> not loving. Breaking up by email, since we know email is only used by Facebook bureaucrats, that is definitely not loving. Breaking up by ignoring them for weeks and weeks and just hoping they go away. Not loving. Breaking up by shunning them when you're together in public and hoping they get the message. Not loving. Breaking up by being really, really annoying and hoping they get sick of it and break up with you first. Not loving. 
breaking up by moving to Alaska and hugging babies. Not loving. Breaking up by saying, but I still really want to be friends. You might, you might be well-meaning, but nine times out of ten, that's probably unrealistic. And I'm not sure, therefore, it really helps. If you're going to break up, which is fine, do it in person, do it gently, be honest, but not brutal, and realistic in your expectations. Of course, if you do choose to break up for a trivial reason, that probably says more about you than that. It's not wrong, but it might be foolish and a bit short-sighted. And if you keep breaking up, breaking up with people for superficial reasons, you will never develop the character traits that you need to be married well. Because key to loving your spouse in marriage is dealing with difference, learning to disagree, learning to communicate and have conflict well. And if you never persevere in a dating relationship to sort out conflict, or think that somehow you're waiting for that relationship to come where there's no conflict. Well, I just think you will probably not end up in a good marriage. A challenge of dating is working out how to have conflict together in a godly and loving way. And if you're not willing to work through their parallel parking problem, or really your frustration with their parallel parking problem, then actually there might not be much future for any dating relationship with you. But you don't have to persevere in a dating relationship. It's okay to break up. And if it's okay to break up for any reason, then it's also okay to break up with someone in order to go out with somebody else. Do it sensitively. Do it gently. But it's not wrong. And I think it's also okay, and this might be a bit controversial, to cut in. That is where you might say to somebody, I think I'd be better for you than the person you're dating at the moment. But you would have to mean it. You would actually have to mean it. Not out of jealousy, not out of envy, out of genuine, humble, other person-centered commitment to their good, out of genuine love. Of course, such behaviour would be terribly wrong to do in marriage. Remember Jesus' words, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So we're all called upon to respect and support marriages that already exist. But in dating, I don't think people are off limits. It needs to be with love, not out of self-interest, but out of humble, other person-centred commitment to their good. Now you might push back and say, ah, oh, well, I've got this person I'm dating and frankly they're off limits to the rest of you because we've, we've got commitment. Well, I understand why you say that. But actually, have you made the promise to stay with one another for life to the exclusion of all others? Oh, well, no, we haven't quite made Right, so you haven't decided to get married yet. No. Well, then just the nature of the case is that you are in a voluntary, temporary relationship. And it's okay to break up. You're still single. Okay, well, we've got a few minutes for questions. Next week, we're going to talk about 
dating, sex, and intimacy in the final of our series. That's next week. But we'll take a few questions. Yeah, if we can give us a few questions there, Declan. And then I'll get Declan to pray. Go. Um, can you date more than one person at a time? Can you date more than one person at a time? I'll answer the question. Can you date more than one person at a time? Not in the way we're talking about dating here. Dating is what we're talking about is not, oh yeah, I went to the movies with somebody. Like, you go to the movies with somebody, that doesn't mean that you are now sort of almost about to get married. You just went to the movies with somebody, right? You grabbed a coffee, like, you might, you might have one-to-one conversations with many different people here, right? As brothers and sisters in Christ. But when you sort of become a thing, you know, where you put your picture together on Facebook, (laughs) I think our cultural expectation is that you only are in that sort of relationship with one person. Um, When thinking about um, getting married, how do finances play into it? When is it not feasible to get married by a financial family situation? I think that's a really good question. When do finances, or you could say other things, when do things like family expectations, how do they impact on us? Like, you might say, you know what, we're ready to get married. We're ready to make those promises to each other. But my family has said, I have to get a job, and I have to buy a unit, and they have to have a job, and they have to finish study, and we have to have all these things before we're allowed to get married. Now, that will, the force of that sort of commission depends on what cultural background you're coming from, probably. And I'm not an expert on all the different cultures we have here at the EU. What I'm, what I'm suggesting, and I'll just speak for myself, I guess coming from a, 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 a Caucasian Western sort of background, I observe that a lot of parents say to their kids, oh, you can't possibly get married until you've done all these things. I wonder whether that's actually truly helpful. I sometimes think, actually, in fact, I know many people who have got married whilst they were at uni. They were students, had no money, well, sorry, they had very little money. <laughs> they had very little money. They lived off, you know, a smell of an oily rag, it seemed. And they were married and really happy. You know, so I'm just wondering sometimes about all the cultural expectations we put on, what you must achieve in order to then start your married life together. I'm not sure those are biblical. I think they're cultural. And therefore, I think they maybe are open to question. One last one, then we'll stop. Is kissing before marriage breaking being a celibate sibling in Christ? Intimacy, sex, dating, next week. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus that everything is created through him and for him. Thank you that by his perfect life, his death and his resurrection, that he has redeemed all things and that by that action we can now have a relationship with you and a restored relationship with others. Father, we ask that just as you have loved us, that you may help us to love one another, that um, as we think about marriage and dating and this topic that you may help us to um, love one another deeply um, with the love that Christ loved and help us to um, not conform to the ways of this world but to follow what your word says. Please give us wisdom as we navigate this tricky topic. We pray that in all things we might be glorifying your name um, as we date and marry. Amen.
Christ in Jesus' name, amen.